Today we have Dr. Alex Sutherland visiting from the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge and also um, at RAND Europe, also in Cambridge. Um, he's a research associate at the Violence Research Center. Um, Alex's current research includes a large cluster randomized control trial in deprived schools across London and several projects relating to neighborhood effects on violence and the perception of disorder, um, changes in the number of first-time entrants to the youth justice system and gang intervention programs. Um, before going to Cambridge, he spent several years working on criminal justice evaluations at the Center for Criminology um, here at Oxford and then completed his DPhil at Oxford in the Department of Sociology. Um, and for the last three years, he has taught quantitative methods across the social sciences at Cambridge. And, uh, yeah. That's, that's everything. <laughs> 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 I was just, I mean, I will repeat them. <laughs> Thanks very much, Eli. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I'll preface this with a disclaimer that, that I'm, I'm newly at RAND Europe, as you'll see in here, and I'm also at the Institute of Criminology. So, I have to kind of be careful about what I say and that not, I'm not libeling either myself or other people. So the views expressed do not necessarily re represent the views of RAND Europe. Let's just put it that way. Just in case I say anything completely outrageous. Um, I was, when I was talking, well, kind of email exchanging with Sean about the, kind of the brief for the, the presentation, um, it was kind of thinking big. Um, and uh, I, I, I've tried to, to think big if I can um, and think about adolescent substance use from a, a range of different perspectives. Um, I think I'm going to try and please maybe all of you or some of you by look, talk, talking about different things, so kind of epidemiological type uh, research, um, theoretical research and, and thinking about interventions. If you're hoping for a long list of effective interventions then you're not going to get those I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but I will try and talk about all these different things and try and rate and kind of highlight some of the problems with uh, conducting research on adolescent substance use um, that I've encountered in my time working on it. You, you note from Eli's introduction that substance use has not really featured recently in my research. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I've had to revisit it, which is quite nice. Okay, so talking about adolescent substance use, do we understand it? What happens when we intervene and when should we intervene or should we intervene? Um, the, the, my, kind of my approach to the topic is that before we intervene, we must try and understand a bit more about the problem. Um, understanding can mean different things. It can mean understanding the prevalence and incidence. Um, it can also mean understanding about the causes and explanations. Um, I'm also looking at what happens when we intervene, you know, thinking about what effective interventions look like um, and um, what evidence is there of an intervention effectiveness. Definitions of what we're going to talk about, what I'll be talking about mainly today, um, are substance use relates primarily to tobacco, alcohol and cannabis use, sometimes generically, more drugs more generically, um, but these three substances form kind of the, the, the backbone of adolescent drug use, certainly um, in, in the West, uh, in other countries as we'll see later it's a bit different. Um, measured how? Uh, well, alcohol use varies from, you know, from trying alcohol, just a sip. Uh, from getting drunk to what we might term alcoholism and it highlights a problem with this field not just alcohol related research but substance use more generally as you'll, as you'll know they're often measuring very different things and, and therefore it's, try, it's hard to try and work out what we're trying to prevent smoking we're talking about primarily cigarettes but often just tobacco use cannabis use is more about smoking it rather than eating it and however ingenious ways of getting it into your body people might have um, 
Okay, so some background, just to remind ourselves that substance use basically has been around for a long time. Ever since our ancestors discovered you could ferment things or lick the back of frogs and then go on trips and chew on foliage, like coca leaves or whatever, um, pe people have been doing it. Now, for, for a long time, the, 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 the kind of who could do these things, who could use these substances, was a, a sacred and highly rule-bound activity. Um, and if you drank the shaman's you know, special brew, then you'd be in trouble. Obviously now, more recently, that this is no longer the case. You know, the rules about who can use drugs, uh, there are rules, obviously, um, but they're certainly not the same as they once were. Adolescence is also a relative, is a, is a recent invention in the UK, and this is something that's worth bearing in mind. The exact dates when adolescence emerged as a period of life are arguable, but um, the, the 20th century is widely regarded as when adolescence kind of first emerged. The exact age range of adolescence is also arguable, but typically catch it by the, the second decade of life. Who am I going to be talking about in this presentation? Well, 11 to 16 year olds primarily, so kids at secondary school, of secondary school age. And when we're talking about schools, I think it's worth bearing in mind there are lots of schools. Um, so in, just in the UK, as an illustration, there are nearly 25,000 schools and they serve a population of about 8 million pupils. And about 3 million of those are secondary school age, are the kind of young people we're talking about. Um, so there are lots of kids and lots of schools. Um, three things to bear in mind. Um, until the 1960s, adolescents were the, the age group that least likely drink alcohol. Um, um, understanding why that might be the case is a, is a topic for another presentation um, but it's worth bearing in mind that, that's a, that some, this is something that's relatively recent. Smoking, um, as you probably all know, smoking was endemic across the UK population until the 1970s and young people did smoke a lot as well. Drug use, I've got question marks um, because I, I, don't know, I hope you, you may know more than I do. Um, I haven't found any kind of reliable um, uh, research about adolescent drug use before the 1970s. If you do know about it, I'd be interested in hearing about it. Um, and I'm, yeah, we won't, we won't go into these kind of uh, apocryphal stories about drug use uh, um, prior to that. So yeah, there's a diff different things happening in terms of substance use and different levels of knowledge. Now we might think about adolescent drug use and drug use more generally as a process um, that looks something like this, maybe. Um, so you have initiation, you have escalation from that, you have termination. From escalation you might lead into stable drug use, so regular drug use, the weekend warriors, whatever you want to call them. This might lead to termination of drug use or, or uncontrolled drug use or addiction. Um, but if we think about it a bit more and more we look, kind of pick at this and look at it, we realise that it's, the process is never as neat and as clean as this. So. And the, the reason we're thinking about this is thinking about where we might intervene. That's kind of why we're, I'm, I'm kind of highlighting this. We realise that you know, young people typically initiate, sort of quote unquote, several times. They try drugs repeatedly to get a flavour for it. Alcohol is a good example. Alcohol is horrible when you first try it. I remember <laughs> trying it for the first time and it not being a pleasant experience. Um, so you can go through this process and these things can overlap and, and, and kind of be iterative um, and it's much less straightforward and clear as we might think. Welcome by the way to the world of structural equation modelling if you're thinking about how you might model these things. Um, the, the point to make is that there's no normative pathway through, through, these, through these stages um, and people drop in and out um, of the pro this process of, of substance use um, as they progress in terms of their use and their, and their age. 
<coughs> but yeah, the, the point about there being no normative pathway is supported by research that looks at um, different methods of uh, assessing this. So growth curve modelling, trajectory modelling show us that there are distinct subgroups of young people within, um, within these pathways that use at different levels over the course of adolescence. Okay. So why should we intervene? Well, um, we'll come on to some more serious consequences in a moment, but there are some slightly less serious ones and ones we'll talk about. And if, apologies if you're feeling a bit queasy, the next couple of slides might put you off uh, your dinner. Um, so alcohol use, there's an obvious consequence about drink, drinking too much alcohol use. You might, you might drink too much and get sick. And these smiley faces, they are actually all smiling. I don't think they've realised what's, what's just happened. Um, you know, but joking aside, there are obviously medium and long-term problems associated with drinking too much alcohol use, uh, drinking too much alcohol. So health, relationships, and problems with your life more generally, holding down a job, um, uh, can be problematic. With smoking, there are obvious problems in terms of smoking, um, visible ones and invisible ones. This is something you don't tend to see that often, the inside of a smoker's mouth. Um, but uh, these are the things that, uh, that, that, that do happen, that can happen when, when young people start smoking um, and smoke heavily. Now, if you, smoke, if you use cannabis, you're not going to turn into Snoop Dogg anytime soon. Um, but it's worth highlighting that, that the, the different um, substances we're talking about have different um, kind of uh, influential advocates, let's put it that way. And someone like Snoop Dogg is very famous and is well known for using cannabis. Um, there are obviously consequences of using cannabis um, that are, go from the kind of ben the benign and, and, and otherwise to the malign. So you might get red eye, you might um, put on weight or lose weight depending on how much you're doing, what you're doing, what you're doing with yourself. Um, but there are obviously also serious consequences of adolescent substance use, and that's kind of we'll move away from the the, the, the comedy now to talk about the more serious ones. If you start using when you're young, um, then you're more likely to use throughout your adult life and use more heavily. Um, you're also more likely to have periods of problematic um, uh, substance use where you're, you're having health problems arising from it or you have regrettable behaviour, quote-unquote, occurring as a result. And these things, if you're all researchers in this area, you'll be familiar with, and anyone who's drunk too much uh, knows that these things can happen. Um, but there are other consequences, knock-on effects of using alcohol, um, that are also prominent, for, in, for example, you can, you're at much greater risk of violent victimisation or being a perpetrator of violence if you, if you drink a lot. Um, for smoking, there are problems obviously like throat and lung cancer. Um, and the pure economic side of it, smoking is now a very expensive habit to have in the UK. So roughly 38 pence a cigarette, if you've got a 20 a day habit, it's about three grand of your net income. So more than that when you add on tax and everything else. So these are consequences that are, are often not uh, discussed in the, in the context of kind of health interventions, but they are still consequences nonetheless. And obviously cannabis is associated with um, different problems, social withdrawal, mental illness, and it's also often touted as a gateway drug to other kinds of uh, um, drug use. But the thing that's often forgotten about interventions that focus on adolescent drug use in particular is that drug use tends to feel quite good. Um, and this is something that's quite hard to counteract. And it's also, yeah, it's, say, it's, it's something that is forgotten quite easily. Um, so this kind of preamble, mm. or ramble, um, not too long, we'll try and get on to answering the questions. So um, talking mainly about prevalence, so what proportion of users are in a given time period rather than about incidence or the frequency of use, um, um, because it just ends up being a very long presentation. Um, so. The classic academic caveat to measuring things is it depends on how it's being measured, where it's being measured, when and by whom. 
And for the purpose of the presentation, we're going to ignore these small problems. Um, but we, you may see them come up, and you know, we can discuss them at the end as as you as you notice them. Um, anyone want to guess what the prevalence of ever having having an alcoholic drink for the English young people are? Uh, Eleven-year-olds. Anyone want to have it hazard a guess? One out of five. So twenty percent. What about fifteen-year-olds? 60-70% Okay, so 11 year olds just over 10% and then alcohol for 15 year olds about 70% um, So the, we're starting with a small country so we're going to start small and England's a small country we're going to look at prevalence rates in a small country and then expand our, our, our point of view We'll give you a bit more detail about what's happening in England at least So this is cross-sectional data um, collected by the uh, Department of Health on a, on a I think an annual, it is an annual basis now, um, and it demonstrates clearly uh, a, a couple of things. First is that kind of a, a, a large proportion of kids, that certainly as they get to 15, have tried alcohol at some point in time. And here we have a problem about, you know, what does that mean in terms of measurement, but we'll leave that aside for one, for one moment. The other obvious thing that jumps out at you is that there's a clear age gradient. So, um, you know, the older the kids are in this cross-sectional data, um, the more likely they are to have tried alcohol. But when you, tr when you track the same kids over time, you notice that this pattern emerging as well, that they are much more likely as they get older to have tried it. Um, but in terms of making comparisons to other countries, we, that, that comes a bit later on. Um, in terms of how much young people are drinking in the UK, or in England, sorry, um, um, the researchers, this is uh, from this um, Department of Health uh, uh, research, uh, first presented the, kind of the, av the mean alcohol consumption the last week by pupils who were drunk by sex and age, and when I looked at this I thought that can't be right because that's about 17 units and that's about five pints of strong, strong beer. That's more than I drink a week, more than I can probably drink in one go. Um, and what they highlight very nicely is that you need to choose the right measure of central tendency when you're summarising this kind of information. This is a highly skewed measure. So they use the median instead and they show that when you use the median it drops to about half, so about eight, uh, eight units a week, um, which is still about three or four pints or you know, uh, a bottle of cider, I would have thought that's the, the alcohol of choice. Um, yeah, if you know about units of alcohol, it's one, it's 10 millilitres of pure alcohol, but we can, we don't need to go into that. So, young people are, are uh, quite a lot of young people are drinking, and they seem to be drinking in, in fair amounts on average, but you know, that's obviously hiding quite a lot of other information. What about smoking? Well, it's estimated in uh, 20, 2011 that about 200,000 11 to 15 year olds started smoking. Um, and the reason we focus on smoking, obviously, is that a lot of those who go on to smoke uh, as adults, the majority start smoking in their adolescence. So 80%, um, uh, it's, it's, it's been suggested, uh, start smoking during adolescence. So it makes sense to, to think about an intervention starting for young people in terms of smoking as, as early as possible. What we notice from this, this is in terms of regular cigarette smoking, that, that there is an age gradient again, but basically nothing's really happening until the kids hit 13. So they, may, they might be trying uh, earlier on, but they actually become regular smokers or start becoming regular smokers um, at 13 um, and upwards. Um, and again, so 10% of 15-year-olds are regular smokers. If you know all this, I'm sorry. <laughs> you might know all this already. Um, Drug use in the last month, uh, uh, there's a lot of information here, but what we're focusing on basically, uh, kind of summarising, is about 1 in 6 11 to 15 year olds have ever tried a drug of some kind. Um, and what we're looking at kind of when, when they last used the drug, so looking at 15 year olds, 
about 12% of 15-year-olds uh, in England are using the last month, another 10% in the last year, but not in the last month, and, and so on. Um, again, quite a, you know, maybe if you don't know this, it seems quite, quite shocking, perhaps, that 30% of 15-year-olds have tried a drug of some kind. The obvious question then is, what kind of drugs? So, very busy table. I've just tried to, to kind of partial out the thing that jumps out at me and certainly seems most interesting. But looking at those kids who have drunk, the proportion of 11 to 13 year olds who've taken a drug of any kind, 79% took only one kind of drug. And we divide this up in terms of its constituent parts. You see that 20% of them have only ever used cannabis, and 52% of this 79, of, sorry, overall, um, had used volatile substances. Anyone know what volatile substances is? <laughs> um, glue, gas, aerosols, um, <coughs> thing, things that are generally quite bad for you. Um, what's interesting is we see that this flips around between 13 to 14 and 15 years, and basically the proportions are, are reversed. So 55% of this, 76%, uh, sorry, have used uh, cannabis only and so on. What's disturbing about this is that the youngest people in 11 to 13, the youngest age group are using a, a sub substances which have one side effect of basically instant death um, there's a good bit of research that Bart's Hospital did um, uh, on this which I, I've got slides on but I'm not going to have time to talk about um, and they show you know, hundreds, a few hundred kids have died in the last sort of 20 years just from doing these kinds of things and it is, it's really unpleasant stuff <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage it. Um, but what's interesting is that it, it just flips around. So, you know, what's happening between here and here, I, I don't know. But um, maybe the kids are getting wise that there's other things they can do that uh, are, are, are a bit more fun, perhaps, or a bit less likely to kill you. Um, so trying to summarise uh, the drug use of uh, adolescents in one country. Um, the prevalence of drinking coupled with their average weekly intake suggests that many kids are drinking, or at least doing drinking a little bit. Some are drinking a lot, yeah? For smoking, you have a strong age trend and emerging as a regular smokers at age 13. For drug use, young people tend to take primarily uh, cannabis, but younger kids are also using these volatile and combustible substances, or VCS. Um, so far, a lot of detail about one country. Um, less detail now, but a broader picture in terms of geography. Um, what about Europe? It's not the point where I start ranting about Europe. Um, so this is data from SPAD. So uh, data uh, collected every four years um, and the UK doesn't have data for 2011 so I've just put in the 2007 data and this is basically the, the prevalence of alcohol use in the last 30 days um, across about 30 countries in Europe um, and yeah I'll skip to the kind of the point is that there's no real as far as I can tell there's no real geographical patterning of the prevalence of alcohol use um, there's quite big differences in terms of the bottom and the top um, um, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, a geographical patterning um, for, for alcohol use. But looking at smoking, it seems to me that the, the countries in Eastern, kind of Eastern Europe top the charts. So the top five countries, Latvia, the Czech Republic, Croatia, Slovak Republic and Bulgaria, um, are the ones with the highest prevalence rates. Um, and the UK fits in 22%, it fits in kind of around here, just, just below average. Um, yeah, so we, there, there is something, maybe something happening here ge geographically. When it comes to lifetime cannabis use, um, there does appear to be quite a leap at the top here 
but don't be fooled by the change in the y-axis so it goes from 90% to 50 at the top to 45 and this kind of exaggerates the, the differences in the bars but there is something going on here uh, in terms of uh, these these three countries um, and again I mean it's, it's a bit kind of silly to try and draw conclusions from a, a single bar chart um, but there doesn't appear to be again any kind of strong kind of geographical patterning of, of the prevalence rates um, but this is just a, this is just for a point of illustration okay so if you've been eagle-eyed or paying attention or perhaps you're from this country you'll notice that the Czech Republic um, features at the top of the charts in both alcohol it's second in terms of smoking and it's top again in terms of cannabis use um, so there's a question mark about whether more research should be done in that country and there is a lot of interest in um, what's happening in the Czech Republic in terms of not just substance use but other lifestyle risks in terms of obesity um, because they seem to ha kind of be winning the wrong kinds of races that's the, that's the way it's been put okay we can go even bigger still and I'm conscious uh, you know, of, of time so I'll, 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 I'll try and skip through these relatively quickly um, this is data from 66 non-western countries um, there's about 165,000 uh, respondents with waiting is, is many, many more than that. And um, the thing that jumps out of you, this is just asking the age that they first drank alcohol and what you might term non-Western countries, the obvious thing is that most kids don't drink. Um, and that obviously leads you to think, well, where's the data come from that this is the case? So it's from the African continent, so nations in African continent, South American nations, and the Caribbean, Middle, Middle East, Central and East Asia. And you're thinking about well how does this play out on a global scale how does alcohol feature on a global scale if you've never seen it before or something like this um, you'll, you'll see that alcohol the red is bad um, uh, it really is a kind of uh, northern hemisphere European problem quote-unquote and this is this this measuring is liters of pure ethanol per capita per year drunk um, in these nations this is WHO figures um, and you see that there are you know large swathes of the world where alcohol really isn't isn't what they what they do they do something else um i'm not going to kind of speculate as to why that might be but uh you, you feel free what where <laughs> here Sorry, so orange is 7.74, oh, 7, 7 the, 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 the colours, the, kind of the, the way this is done is very kind of quick and dirty, is it, it hides uh, gradients between these two, so the orange is more towards this end, but uh, there are no numbers attached to it. Um, but we see that, yeah, that there, are, there is quite, quite, some, quite distinct regions for alcohol use. Um, Okay, oh, smoking. Oh, sorry, we have to skip this one out. I haven't got it prepared. There's, I'll, I'll show you, if you're interested, I can show you this link afterwards. There's a fantastic piece of um, uh, research done and it's published recently, which has an interactive map, kind of Hans Rosling style of smoking prevalence across the world, but let's not spend time on it now. I'll just, we'll just skip over it. Um, this slide um, looks at lifetime cannabis use in 35 of these 66 non-Western countries. Uh, I haven't put the names of the countries on because it's, it's not really that important. The point is to illustrate that even in countries where alcohol isn't used, there's still a lot of variation in terms of drug use, to, and a lot of variation to explain in terms of drug use in these countries. Um, and uh, yeah, a map of cannabis prevalence around the world, but lots of missing data, so we won't, we won't dwell on it too long. Um, the point, which I'll get to now, in terms of understanding prevalence and incidences that there are differences in how things are measured 
Um, but in general, there are estimates available from across the globe, from a large part of the world, which is quite fantastic, and it means we can do quite a lot of interesting stuff. Um, the other benefit of having this, this information available is it allows us to think comparatively, and that's often something that's not done a great deal, and you'll, you'll illustrate this now in talking about understanding in terms of explaining and knowing the causes of. So, you know, when, we when it comes to explaining and knowing the causes of, this is where things get much more complicated and difficult. Um, if you were to ask the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus, as the saying goes, why young people take drugs, then the response is quite likely to be a kind of simplistic, monocausal perspective that it's all about this or it's all about that. And unfortunately, if you were to ask the academic world the same question in the past, the response is often of the same ilk. It's about this or it's about that. Um, so I'm not going to kind of besmirch the good, the good name of any of the people that have put these theories together, Here's some examples of theories of substance use, primarily from psychology, sociology, and criminology, with a nod to biology in terms of genetics. Um, I'm not going to really discuss any of them in detail, um, because that's a whole kind of lecture series in itself, but I'll talk about some of them and then present some problems with how these theories have been assessed and their kind of the usefulness for in learning about intervention. So one question, obviously, is what evidence is there for these theories? That's not really the right question. There's lots of evidence these, for these theories. The question is how good is the evidence for these theories? Um, so self-control, as one example, broadly defined, has a lot of empirical support from a range of disciplines. It also has a good kind of bottom-up support in terms of the neurological and physiological basis for self-control. There's an argument made recently by Terry Moffat and, and, and other authors that it's never been more important um, to know and understand about self-control and to have it in spades as a human because we're faced with temptations, a lot of temptations every day. Self-efficacy is something else that also um, uh, pops up quite frequently um, and, again, has interdisciplinary support. And th the question arises, really, is, is drug and alcohol use really about believing you can do it or is it about more about the attitudes that drive the intentions? And you see that efficacy typically right, kind of is seen in terms of refusal efficacy, so refusing to, take, to uh, accept an offer of drug use. Social learning and social influence have a lot of supporting evidence from a range of disciplines and again lots of systematic reviews and really excellent pieces of work done from different disciplines um, that use different methods that demonstrated this um, pretty clearly. Um, but the question arises, I've only put on a, a, a few theories on that, that previous slide and talked about a few there, um, but there are lots and lots more theories out there. Um, if you're just starting out in this, or even if you're not, you can be often overwhelmed by how many theories there are. So there's a good, really excellent review, oh, can't, isn't it? Petra I think it's Petratus, out 1995. 30 different theories um, are reviewed in this one paper um, from 1995, and lots of those theories are still out there. <laughs> um, and you're thinking, well, there's so many theories, that, that doesn't seem to add up. When you start looking at how these theories have been assessed, um, a good proportion of these theory testing papers use kind of post hoc reasoning or inappropriate data and analysis. And they're often at odds with what we observe about humans in general. So um, there's a theory of rational addiction, and the idea that addiction is a kind of a rationally debated thing done on a daily basis or frequently, very frequently. It doesn't seem to add up when you think about things like how quickly humans pick up habits, actual habits, habituated actions. So, for example, think about last Christmas. Um, for about 10 days, I didn't know what hunger was. Because I was, anytime I wasn't doing something, I was eating. Because there was food everywhere. I wasn't even thinking about eating, I was just eating. And it's a silly example, I know, but very quickly we, we, we start to habituate what we're doing, our, our movements. 
Um, and there is you know, good evidence that drug addiction might just be the result not just of physical dependence on something, but also the, the physical habituation of taking drugs. Um, another problem is that these theories are often presented as being mutually exclusive or are analysed as such, so the idea that they have kind of parallel lines. So this theory and that theory never intersect. Um, and the problem with this is that theory integration takes time and effort and is often kind of poorly rewarded. So things are changing. There's lots of interesting kind of biosocial theory integration, gene-environment interactions, along with other things as well. And we have this, had this issue certainly in criminology and other disciplines as well, but you have so many different thing, explanations, there's just not enough of the thing that's occurring for them all to be right. Um, and I mean, I, you may probably know more than I do about how far theory integration has gone or whether people are actually bothering with this at all and just focusing on interventions. <laughs> Eli's nodding, maybe. <laughs> okay, so why do young people say they start drinking, smoking and taking drugs? The overwhelming result from this, again, this is just one piece of evidence from the UK, source at the bottom, sorry, is that they want to see what it was like. Yeah, that's what jumps out from this very simplistic graph. Um, and this doesn't really fit in with what lots of these theories say is going on. It does fit in with something like self-control, with sensation-seeking. Um, it's obviously not the only thing that's going on. It's, these reasons mix up kind of uh, thing, uh, things that might come before and after. But I think more importantly, when you're thinking about kind of the global picture, it's increasingly difficult for lots of the theories I've mentioned to gain traction. Um, so if I was to draw you a heat map or just a simple map of where the theories have come from in the world, it's a handful of about... The, world, uh, the world's 200 countries, basically. So I, one question I put to you is whether theories of substance use should be theories about substance use in a handful of Western countries rather than theories of substance use globally. Because often the claims are made about substance use more generally, but they don't kind of ever put the caveat in. Go on. Are you talking about theories about why people start using or about addiction? Uh, I'm fudging it by not saying either. <laughs> but primarily, I mean, if you're thinking about why, why young people use drugs rather than addiction. Why they try them? Yeah, well, try them and use them rather than okay. addiction, I suppose. Okay. Um, I think I've, I've kept away from addiction because there's a very kind of specific literature mm -hmm. on, um, on addiction treatment, which you know more than I do. Um, so one problem is therefore, if we don't really know what the potential causes are, intervention becomes that much more difficult. Um, but that hasn't really stopped us. <laughs> um, from intervening anyway. So I'll talk a bit about specifics of a few interventions again because it's a big, a big area. Otherwise I'll focus on reviews of classes or types of interventions that I've come across and I'm in, I can say this, I can't really say this in this place, I've done this non-systematically, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there are lots of other interventions you'll probably know about more than I will but uh, forgive me if I miss them out. Now, I'll start with perhaps the most successful intervention in the history of public health, selling cigarettes. <laughs> Um, you might wonder, this is a strange thing to start with, but um, uh, I've been recently doing some work with colleagues at RAND about advertising, the effect of advertising on, on, on young people's alcohol behaviour. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, what it highlights is that we kind of ignore advertising, we think we barely notice it, but it does influence our behaviour and it is a kind of intervention that's going on all the time that we don't really pay attention to. Now Marlborough Country today looks a little bit less appealing. Um, because you can't smoke indoors in lots of countries. <laughs> um, uh, the question really is, you know, what kind of... Ten minutes, okay, thanks. So what kind of, what do effective interventions look like? And I put effective question mark because the more I looked, the smaller the effect size has got. <laughs> it's really, dis really disheartening. 
Um, but I'll pick, I'll pick out this one in particular because it uses things that usually cause problems for individually randomised trials, such as contamination, and it uses them for the good. So this is, a, a, I think, a very cool study um, called the uh, ASSIST, it's the ASSIST project, and it uses a social network approach to first identify the kids, the key players in the school in terms of popularity. It then gives them additional education about smoking, about the problems of smoking, health-related problems of smoking, and then let social influence do the work. So we know that social influence matters for kind of spreading drug use, so we can use it to stop spreading drug use. Um, and I've put the results here promising and question mark update. I've only seen stuff from, I think, around about 2008 or 9. I don't know if any more recent research has been published on it. Anyone, does anyone know if, if the results of any more follow-ups? Yes, is it? Yeah, they are doing this. Do you know? They're out. They're out. Okay, <laughs> I've missed it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, highlighting this is a, a kind of a, a nice and interesting approach that uses what we know uh, in a slightly different way. Um, this is uh, another, another cluster randomised trial, that the previous one was as well. Um, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to translate it that, or speak or say it, but um, basically the idea is you're getting young people um, uh, and you're trying to kind of address lots of different things at the same time. So their knowledge, attitudes, norms and their kind of resistance efficacy. And although it's, it's, it shows an effect, it's very small. So small effect on behaviour, moderate knowledge, and none on current smoking. This is why when I first thought, oh, there must be loads of evidence out there about effective interventions, and then the more I looked, <laughs> the smaller the effects that I just got. Um, so this is just one example. Again, it's just teaching young, young people about problems with smoking and doing lots of different things at the same time. But I think this kind of typifies... Um, kind of anti-smoking education um, or in intervention certainly. So for alcohol, um, uh, a few different uh, things that uh, I've come across. Um, I focus on a couple of these. So motivational interview, in interviewing basically when people are already drinking, um, you're trying to help them manage their drinking behaviour or reduce it. Um, and it's it tended to work through these things here, expressing sympathy, supporting self-efficacy, and whatever role in the resistance is. I haven't come up with a good definition. If you know, please tell me. Um, and the thing I'm trying to highlight with this is that, you know, kind of one-off studies suggest that it's got efficacy, um, but then systematic reviews say diff slightly different things. So one in 2005 says that versus treatment as usual, it was effective. But a more recent review for the Campbell collaboration says it was, it was effective versus um, no treatment, but was versus treatment as usual or anything else, there was no effect. Um, so it's not quite as, as much good news as one might hope. Um, another intervention, I think, which was interesting that uh, I came across, highlights um, these online alcohol interventions. So brief, personalised feedback about drinking behaviour um, and then education, kind of modulised education about it. Um, and it shows, again, small to medium effect sizes. Um, one of the problems is there's lots of different kinds of outcomes and follow-up periods. And there's lots of student-based studies, like it's a bad thing. Students do a lot of drinking. It might be a sensible thing to, to, to focus on their drinking behaviour. And it suggests utility for hard-to-reach populations, not students per se, but um, people who are in institutions, such as prisons or children's homes. It might be a useful way of intervening with them that doesn't involve direct face-to-face -face contact. Drug use, mentoring... Um, Kind of everywhere I look in criminal justice, wherever mentoring appears, and um, it's a very long-winded explanation about what mentoring is. I've summarised as someone older teaching someone younger about stuff. That's kind of how I. <laughs> Otherwise, I have to read all this out. We haven't got time for that. Um, a recent systematic review, a meta-analysis, suggests it has a relatively small uh, effect size, 
Um, but it's also contradicted by other views, and bizarrely, a review, uh, this is update, this Tolan 13 is updating one in 2008, the same data, different result. <laughs> I have to. I can show you the, 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 afterwards what, um, why, the, the, well, why I think it happened, but it's a very strange, very strange place for, for that to that, well, thing, thing for that to happen. Um, another thing is skills-based interventions, where you're emphasising drug refusal skills again and encouraging kind of uh, them to d discuss drug use in a, in a safe environment. And this review of meta-analyses by Sandler et al. just published. Um, this approach to skills-based interventions versus just lectures and education, thou shalt not, um, was shown to be effective. Um, so that's, that's quite encouraging. But um, there is, as I met, I've already highlighted, there's some, there's some not so good news in that there's, the reductions are obviously are often only modest. Um, m many studies kind of interventions are ineffective and lots of them haven't been rigorously evaluated. So about less than 1% of this review, recent review, the studies met the inclusion criteria. Um, and also, and I find this more disturbing, is that, that lots of the studies, although they may have interesting and useful methods, are not driven by any kind of theory. They have no idea that kind of it's a black box. So, and certainly even when they are evaluating a program, the, the, the people writing up the intervention and the evaluation don't really talk about the processes of impact, the theorised process of impact, linking the intervention to the outcome. Five minutes, thank you. Okay, very quickly, I think we've got five, five minutes left, I think I can do it. Um, so, um, I, hope, I think that's the name, the, the, the title of the seminar series, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping so. Um, so, uh, keeping it global, so um, there are lots of reviews conducted, as I've highlighted a, a, a few recently, um, and this kind of this quote summarises um, kind of how the reviewers typically view their ex the, the work they're doing in, in conducting the review. So we summarise current understanding of intervention opportunities and conclusions of evaluation studies that examine effects and modification of behaviour, reduction of harm, and savings in costs. Now. The problems with such reviews are that typically um, they're, they're making claims about causation or eff efficacy based upon interventions that are run largely in Western countries. Um, and kind of the problem with this is typified by the second quote, which is published in the same edition, I think it's the BNJ. Um, we know a lot about kind of substance use of young people in developing countries, but you can't say the same about the efficacy of interventions in those countries because they're often not being done in those countries. And I think when it comes to thinking about interventions and certainly the theories underpinning them, um, we should always be thinking about making these comparisons internationally rather than just based upon one country. Maybe I'm preaching to the converted here, who knows. Um, so I have to put my money on where to intervene. Well, I'm going I'm to kind of slide away from that a bit and just say emerging markets, which is a very vague, <laughs> vague term, um, seem like a sensible place to go. Um, it, you know, if you can reduce substance use or, you know, let's just say smoking um, in, a, in, a, in an emerging market or a, a fully blown market now, I suppose, you'll do more for the global health burden than reducing it in a country where prevalence rates are quite low already. Um, the other thing, the other area that seems is, is kind of ripe, ripe for intervention and certainly more research is alternative delivery systems. Anyone here smoke e-cigarettes? Uh, no? Anyone use vapes? No? No? Okay. Yeah, one? No, okay. Um, so um, e-cigarettes are something which has uh, become more and more prominent um, and, uh, and I've even heard put that um, 
we don't know if they're bad for you or not, so it's okay if you use them, sort of thing. And, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've heard what a, a Dutch colleague told me that on Dutch television there was a, a, a woman pushing a pram, smoking an e-cigarette, and she takes it out and blows the smoke on the baby. And I'm not sure if it was a spoof or not, <laughs> but um, it's, it seemed that way to me. But um, yeah, they're, 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 they've caused such That's consternation. Um, that the chief medical officer of the UK recently announced they would be banned, to under, the sale of them would be banned for under 18s. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, I think it's a sensible move. Um, I also think that, that maybe missing the people that are going to be most likely to use them, because they're quite expensive. Um, and it may be people that are a bit older, have more disposable income, are the ones that are using them. Uh, certainly friends of mine walk around puffing them like they're going out of fashion. Um, and there's no, I mean, there's mixed, mixed knowledge about their toxicity and about how much is being delivered to you in terms of nicotine content and what that will do to you in the long run. And the final thing, I, area I think it's worth kind of in, in, thinking about intervention still is advertising. I did it as a joke earlier, but advertising uh, is, is an area where we, we're, kind of, we're kind of not really paying attention, I don't think, as much as we should do. Um, young people, and just watching telly, uh, are more likely than adults to be exposed to alcohol advertising. That gets much higher when you look at online um, use because of the way the I think it's because of the way kind of Facebook or whatever maybe edit that from the recording <laughs> um, uh, kind of you pinpoint sales you know based on your user behaviour um, and the same with kind of targeted advertising they may be picking up the fact that you're quite young they don't know if you're 12 or or 18 so they just kind of fire the adverts that they think fit the profile. Okay, summing up because I'm basically out of time, I think. Um, yeah, lots of theories are, are developed and interventions are also developed in Western countries, but the claims about the efficacy are made more widely. Um, the applicability of non-Western um, kind of intervention, sorry, of Western interventions to non-Western countries is being tested. Um, the question, I suppose, one question is: that should we should we be developing new theories and interventions for these locations, or should we just use the ones we've already got? Um, I think. We're out of time, so I can stop. No, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so just to talk about trends very quickly. Trends in, this is the UK only, so you're probably aware of this. This is trends in attitudes to drinking. Um, younger people report increasingly, um, well, sorry, decreasingly are saying it's okay to drink, yeah? And their behaviour is also mirroring this. So a lower and lower proportion of kids think it's okay to drink, um, and their behaviour is following this. Smoking in Britain has been in decline um, since the mid-70s and slightly before that. Um, and drug use amongst young people has also been in decline for at least the last decade, and, and if not beyond. Um, so the question is, if we're thinking about you know, these declines, what's driving them? And trying to bring together the things I've been talking about. Is it interventions? Is it legislation? Is it other things that are driving it? Um, is it attitudes, less availability? Who knows? I, I, I don't know. Um, but I'm just throwing it out there as a, as, a, as a question to you. So what might be driving these and where can we go from here? And I think I've said enough, so I'll leave it, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks very much for your attention.